gospel, you could turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 is where we're headed this morning. Uh, as we're going to Acts chapter 18, let me just follow up and, and reiterate a couple of things that Brian mentioned. That's uh, one, that Easter is coming soon. I'd love for you to be praying uh, for us. Uh, I know that it's, uh, it sounds... It sounds sort of cliche, but I mean, Easter is uh, Easter is still a big deal in our culture, not just in the church. It's a big deal in our culture, and we want to do the best that we can to witness, to testify, to be truthful about the resurrection of Jesus. And we really are praying that God would meet people on April fifth. Uh, to that end, obviously, we've we're trying to open up space and room. We've had a number of services over the last few months that honestly we just couldn't fit more people in the eleven o'clock service. We feel like it's, uh, it's good planning for us to think about uh, different times on that date. So April 5th, as Brian mentioned, 8.30, uh, 10 and 11.30 is the, is the goal. I want to mention, too, if you didn't get an Acts booklet, uh, this is the last booklet in the series. I think it goes up to 29 chapters. We actually have spent about 32 weeks in Acts. There was a few of the, of the weeks that we broke out and did kind of like a part two uh, to it. But this hopefully would be a help to you. You can pick that up. It's on the, on the way out when you go to, when you go to leave. We're going to begin reading in Acts chapter 18, verse 23. And what we're going to do is we're going to break up this next section, the end of Acts 18, and then all the way in Acts 19, we're going to break it up into three different sections and look at it. Basically, this week and next week is the episode of Paul in Ephesus. It's a fruitful missionary stop for him. It's one that he longed to do for quite a, to- quite a time. We'll see by the end of next week, he creates such a connection that he has a tearful goodbye. A, one of the longest letters that he, that he writes, uh, the, the longest statements that he makes in the book of Acts is his farewell address to the elders in Ephesus. We know, of course, that the book of Ephesians is written to this same people. If you read that book, it just it exudes his love, his care, uh, his prayer life for the saints in Ephesus. And we're going to see just this week three sort of scenes, little pictures, little windows into what was taking place in his ministry in Ephesus. I'm going to begin reading in verse 23 because this verse, 23, is the launch out of what people are going to call the third missionary journey. Now, the way that the missionary journeys and acts are marked is basically it's this. You look through the Bible and you say to yourself, when did Paul start and stop from Antioch? Antioch becomes this hinge for him to keep getting thrown out into mission and then back. Thrown out into mission and then back. At the end of verse 22, in 22, he is in Antioch. And now verse 23 opens up where we see that he's not content. He's gone out twice. He has this longing, this desire to go And so this is the beginning of the third missionary journey. I'm going to read starting in verse 23, just up through verse 7 of chapter 19, and we'll pause there. This is God's Word, Acts 18.23. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, 
For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. He said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. I want to pause there and pray. God, I ask that in the next few moments together that You would aid us, that You would illumine our minds, You'd give us insight into Your Word. We've gathered here on this morning. You've met us with mercy, grace. You're sustaining us even now here in these moments. You've spoken. You've been so gracious and kind. You've given Your Spirit through Through the work of Jesus Christ, we have access, confidence, standing before You. And I pray that as we learn together today, that You would help help us to see, help us to see wonderful things in Your Word. God, we don't want this to be a mere academic exercise, so please transform our hearts, move in us. Help us to press on to be deeper and greater learners. Help us to be bold. I pray that we would not shrink back. But we would declare Jesus to our own souls and to the people who are around us. We need, our, we need your help. And we ask for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to walk through these three different scenes. This first one that we just read about, I'm going to call Mere Christianity. That's a borrowed title from one of the most popular books of the last hundred years probably, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. I hope you'll see as we walk through this first section why I'm saying that. Mere Christianity. Then after that, we're going to see a section in verses basically 8 through 20. Uh, 8 through 20, we're going to look at basically miraculous uh, Christianity. There's some uh, miracles that are done that quite honestly are, are fascinating. We'll see that in a moment. And the last little scene we're going to look at is this idea of meddlesome Christianity. M-E-D-D-L-E-some. Meddlesome. And there's a terrible, not only is that alliteration, they all start with M, but there's a terrible pun in there somewhere and we're going to get to it um, when we get there. But to begin with, I want to mention this particular uh, instance that I'm going to sort of frame under the title of mere Christianity, the section opens with Paul being launched out again from Antioch and he's going to land in Ephesus. He's going to land in Ephesus and I think it's for a particular reason. We saw in the second missionary journey at the beginning of the journey, he wanted to go to Asia. The Holy Spirit said no. He ends up going to Macedonia instead. And on his way back to Antioch, he takes sort of a side trip, a little a little excursion, and he lands in Ephesus for just a little while. He lands there long enough just to meet a few influential people, to say hello to the church there. And at the end, in, at the end of the second missionary journey, in verse 21 of Acts 18, it should be on the same page probably where we just read, verse 21 of Acts chapter 18, we see the church there 
asking him. Verse 20, it says they asked him to stay for a longer period, but at that point, Paul declined. This is not, my, this is not the time for him to stay. But in verse 21, he makes this promise to the people in Ephesus. I will return to you if God wills. We don't have to wait long to figure out if God wills. Within two verses, he is basically two or three verses, he is back in Ephesus. And we find out that he ends up staying there for quite a long time. More than a couple of years, he is going to be with this church in Ephesus. And what happens is, Luke gives us this sort of like uh, a window to get a picture, to frame what's going to happen when Paul gets there. Verses 24 through the end of Acts chapter 18 is, is one of those things, have you ever seen in a, in a movie or a TV show where there'll be a scene that's sort of out of chronology? usually just opens. It's the part where if like you're still getting popcorn, you're really confused. It opens with a scene, and the only, t- the only way you know it's kind of out of chronology is that at the bottom it says 1824, right? And like in 1824, like a crusty old man dug a gold mine in secret, then he covered it over with some rocks so that later, right, then it skips to present time and you see a kid like riding his dirt bike and he's heading for the spot, right? What happens is you say to yourself like, oh, see, I I have like inside knowledge. There's a hole in the ground right there. And then it heightens your suspense, right? Of this kid, he's riding his bike and you see him going. He's going to the pitfall. He's going to fall in. He framed something from the 1820s so that later, isn't that, this sounds like a good movie, doesn't it? Brian, you should get on making this. What do we call it? The Little Boy and the Pitfall? You have a better title? I don't know. This is, a, this, is the, this is basically what's happening. We get introduced to this guy named Apollos, and he has been hanging out in Ephesus, and apparently he's just a stud of a human being, right? The description of Apollos is amazing. He teaches accurately in some ways, which I think is a bit ironic because we're going to find out what happens with his teaching. He is an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He is fervent in spirit. So much so that later... This trip to Corinth that's mentioned here, later, Paul is going to have to rebuke the, the church in, in, in Corinth. Remember in 1 Corinthians at the beginning, he says, some of you say, I am of Paul. And then what's one of the lists? I am of Apollos. Apparently, Apollos was a man who was just a whirlwind, a force of nature, someone who could persuade and get you caught up and say, I want to follow this guy. And so he was sincere But in his teaching, there is error. It's anemic teaching. There's not the fullness quite yet when he begins to teach of who Jesus is and what he meant. It could be that they had not even yet in Ephesus heard the full extent of what happened in Pentecost. Remember Jerusalem had this crazy event. The Holy Spirit falls. It indwells Christians in a way that the Holy Spirit had not worked in the face of the earth before. And he begins to teach. And we learn a couple of things from this encounter. Priscilla and Aquila come, and they hear him teaching in the synagogue. Some translations say that they took him aside. They pulled him to the side. I think there's some wisdom in this. He's a sincere man who in many ways is teaching accurately, and people come. And note what they did not do. They didn't set up like a separate debate corner, right? They didn't write like a diatribe against Apollos. It says they took him aside. They kept the matter as private probably as they could and graciously called him to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. I think the reason that this entire section is here 
is to set up this idea that there would be some disciples. Paul is going to encounter some disciples with deficient thinking. That's what's going to happen. Acts 19, he's going to show up. Paul encounters these people who seem like disciples. They seem like Christians, but there's severe deficiencies there. And so that doesn't seem like a shock to us. Luke gives us this little window. This is like, like back in 1824 window. Apollos is teaching powerfully but deficiently. He leaves for Corinth. He's off. And then in verse 19, cut scene, go to black, comes up. Here comes Paul riding his camel or donkey or whatever. Do you ride? I don't think you know if you ride camels. I'm no expert in these things. But he's coming into Ephesus and he is going to meet some what Luke calls in verse 1 of chapter 19 some disciples. Now, I think that what we're going to figure out is that these, act, these are actually what some commentators have called almost Christians. They're almost Christians. Not only are they almost Christians, but we're not sure exactly the number of them. Luke, who is so precise in some moments, says in verse 7, there were about 12 men in all. And these men have been baptized, but only in the baptism of that John was preaching, a baptism of repentance. And Paul begins to encounter them, and he starts to ask some questions. I think at first he sees and understands that they are sincere. They're spiritual people. They want to know the way of the Lord. They want to walk in faithfulness. But something about the connection that he has with them makes him say to himself, I need to ask a few more questions. So he says just directly to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I have to think this took a little bit of boldness. We are not accustomed to, and I think it's something that we're learning from this particular section. I don't think we're accustomed to asking one another hard questions. If you act generally moral enough, if you show up to church, if you're sort of around and you say things that seem sort of right, there's an assumption that most of us make that like everything's just fine and you're totally okay and it's great. Paul is not being a jerk by saying to them, hey, let me ask you, what do you understand about the Holy Spirit? What do you understand about who Jesus is and what He was doing and what it means for your life? Did did you receive the Holy Spirit when you came? This is not Him being rude. It's not Him, I, I think, He's not stepping on anyone's toes. He's using discernment to realize that these people who Luke says he thinks were disciples in verse 1 had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And I think what this means for us is that we are supposed to see them as not Christians at all. And this is important because a lot of people read this passage in Acts chapter 19 and want to use it as a proof text to say that there's some sort of like secondary blessing that comes. That these people were Christians and that Paul needed to come and pray for them or maybe lay hands on them so that they would receive the Holy Spirit. There are entire doctrines and in fact some denominations, I would say their entire practice of the Christian faith is is unduly influenced by passages like this. And if these people were Christians, then they were, they were Christians of a kind that were completely deficient and lacking something. So that you could probably go and say, have you had this experience before? I've never had the experience of someone laying hands on me, the Holy Spirit coming, me speaking in tongues and prophesying. I've not had that. And if these men were Christians beforehand, then I would read this and I would say to myself like, oh man, I really missed it. I'm, I'm lacking in the sense that God is withholding something from me. 
Instead, I think we need to realize that what's happening here is these are sincere, spiritually minded people who want to follow. They believe that the Messiah is coming. They've repented of their sins. This baptism of repentance means a change of mind, a turning around, a rejecting of our mindset, of the things that we love. Repentance is an agreement with God that holiness is necessary. And they have all of that, but they have not understood and they have not received the Holy Spirit. I think this is a serious malady. And it gets at the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? There are certain questions that I would not press on someone, like if you have a particular understanding of doctrines of eschatology, in other words, end times, you could come to me and say, like, here's how I understand the end times. And you could come up with all kinds of crazy stuff. You could have, you could have instructive, like, whiteboards with cutouts of Nicolas Cage and movie things, right? You could have in a million different things about the way that end times work. And at the end of that, I would not say to you, like, I'm not sure you're a Christian, there's a, there are a variance of understandings. There's a depth of maturity sometimes that happens in Christianity. We're always supposed to be pressing on to know more of Jesus, the implications of our faith. But this issue, I think, is an issue of mere Christianity. The baseline. What does it mean to be alive? And let me tell you a few of the reasons why I think that these were not Christians when Paul encounters them. I'm going to read the way that the New Testament describes what it means to be alive in Jesus. This comes from Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. Consider the significance of receiving and understanding the Holy Spirit. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And this is not just proof texting. This is not just pulling from one spot that seems to say, well, this finds agreement with what I'm trying to say. We'll look at a few other places. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, we see... We see this about the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one that that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that moves a person from sincere, sincere unbelief to sincere belief. No other No other mechanism God has given except for the Spirit of God to take someone from death to life. And this is something that we have to uphold, that we have to press forward, that we have to lean into, without which Christianity completely falls apart. This is mere Christianity. This is baseline Christianity. Last one, 1 John chapter 4. And I think you'd see this all the way throughout the New Testament. 1 John chapter 4 verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. Why? Because He has given us His Spirit. Us of His Spirit. We must be born again by the Spirit of God or we are not Christians. And this is the only interpretive tool. This is the key that helps us to understand this crazy scenario that's happening in the beginning of chapter 19. How can Luke call them disciples? How can they be sincere? They've never even heard of the third member of the Trinity, right? 
what's happening here, but we see that they're sincere because upon hearing of the Holy Spirit and hearing of Jesus Christ, they say, yes, baptize us. Baptize me into this name. Their repentance, their penchant for desiring repentance before God turns into belief in Jesus. There we see these things tied in together again. There is no true belief in God without true repentance. There is no true repentance before God without believing and trusting what Jesus has done for us. These are always tied together. Let me mention just a few things I think we can learn from this curious case of the 12 almost Christians, right? I think we can learn this, that the word disciple, in some sense, is being demonstrated for us. The disciple is a learner, a follower. You must always be pressing for deeper understanding of Jesus. Always pressing. If you look over the course of your life, over a few months, certainly over the course of years, I think that you could do a sort of hunger check in your life. Are you hungry hungry for more of who God is? A deeper understanding of what it means to be in Him. In the book of Ephesians, Paul would write, for this reason I bow my knee that you would would be filled up with the knowledge of the Son of God. To grow in a deeper knowledge of who He is. There is a sense that to trust Jesus and to know Him is to want to know Him more. And this ought to be a personal sort of litmus test for us. You ought to have the humility. There should be some people in your life who can ask you or can say to you, hey, I just want you to know that it seems like there's this very, a very real and obvious lack of spiritual hunger in your life. Are you okay? To be born again means that you will hunger after a maturing, deepening, understanding who is Jesus and what does He mean in my life. If you... I was going to say if you met a baby, like he was just hanging out on the street. <laughs> like, uh, hey, how's it going? I'm a baby. Uh, so if you, if you encountered a, a child, a baby, right? Like hunger is not a minor thing. A desire for deeper understanding is not a minor thing. I've been in a hospital with my wife and a child, and the reason we don't go home is because the baby needs to learn how to eat, needs to be hungry, needs to be growing and maturing This is a mark of Christianity. Disciple means learner, and we need to press in. On both sides, we need to be willing to ask people hard questions, and we need to have a humility that says, I am willing to be pressed. People can ask me, are you intreatable? I don't think this means that you ought to go around and and pride yourself on being like the Holy Spirit radar, right? It seems like you are not in Jesus, my friend, right? Like, I don't think that needs to be your job, But after a while, if you build a trust and a love and a care and a concern, then your care and concern for people should lead you to ask hard questions at times. Seems like you've lost the gospel. You seem really, really concerned and worried and uptight about whatever circumstances are happening. I understand grief, but are you you understanding that God is for you? He loves you. He cares for you. These are the kind of questions that Christians ask one another. It's part of Paul's fruitful ministry. I think the key to understanding this text is, one, to get this little picture of Apollos, who's teaching sincerely and fervently and being used of God. What is Paul going to say later? He says, it's God that causes the growth. I planted, or Apollos planted, or 
I watered, Apollos watered. Do you see how there's things going on? If you looked back and you were one of these 12 almost Christians and someone said to you, how did you come to faith in Jesus? What a journey you would say, right? Well, let me tell you, first there was this Apollos guy. And he told us about a guy named John the Baptist who was down in Judea, right? And he was like in the wilderness baptizing people. And we really felt convicted about that. We repent, right? God is causing the growth. God is moving them to be alive by the Holy Spirit. But he's using Apollos first and then Paul to come in and to water and to refine and to prune and to go deeper. This is mere Christianity. Without the Spirit of God, I don't know how to say it, without the Spirit of God making you alive, you are dead in your sins. That's what the Bible teaches. I'm going to go to the next uh, section. This is a, a, a section of miracles that happen in Ephesus that is very intriguing and interesting. John Stott, want, Stott once called this section the sweat rag miracles. In verse 8, let's pick it up in verse 8 of Acts chapter 19. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, what, what an amazing job to do. If they had a business card, like, hi, I'm, a, I'm an itinerant Jewish exorcist. Uh, they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastering, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There's some sections that are easy to preach. I've got to be honest, right? Like, give me some Romans 3.23. <laughs> That's like... Just pour some coffee. We're going to town. Like, let's just, we're just gonna, it's just going to go for it. And then there are other sections you read in the Bible, and I just think that anybody who attempts to read through it and sort of explain what's going on really ought to just sort of say like, hmm, <laughs> um, hmm. And uh, there, were the, there were a million moments like that in the last few weeks for this section. Hmm, uh, hmm, what? Right? We're learning about the ministry of Paul, and at times, Paul's ministry is unbelievably miraculous. Some, in some instances, he is normal. He's reasoning for three months in the, in the synagogue. And he withdraws from them. I think this is instructive for us. We should not cast pearls before swine, Jesus might have said. 
There comes a point when we are reasoning and begging and pleading, maybe not for the good of the soul of the person that we're communicating with, but because we feel some sort of urgency to win. And Paul rejects that. He's perfectly okay with having no results. This should be an encouraging thing to us. There's some aspects of Paul's ministry that I cannot identify with, like, like uh, miraculous sweat rags <laughs> to heal, heal people. We'll talk about that in a moment. But there are other parts where I think to myself, like, this is a man I can relate with, a kind of man who can reason about Jesus for three months and encounter such hardness of heart that he finally just says, like, okay, we're out of here. <laughs> like, let's move on to somewhere else. Paul's ministry was not a call to bang his head against a wall. That was not his ministry. But in order to testify to who he was, it says in verse 11 this amazing statement. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Extraordinary miracles for when the regular kind just isn't enough, right? No, God, I know, I know you're doing miracles, but could you do some extraordinary ones instead? Luke actually takes great pains. There's other sections of the book of Acts. There's other sections all the way throughout the New Testament where the word for miracles, signs, basically is used. But in this case, I think Luke knows, okay, I need to relay an amazing and interesting and crazy story, and I need to add an adjective in front of it. And so he, makes, he takes great care to say this is not the, a miracle of the normal kind. It's extraordinary. Paul's handkerchiefs aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. What are we going to make of this? I think a few different things. One, we can recall, and I think Luke is probably recalling, that at times Jesus had a miraculous healing ministry such that if you just touched the hem of his garment, you would be healed. Second, one of the reasons that there were extraordinary miracles taking place by the hand of Paul is because Paul constantly encountered questions about his apostleship. Everywhere that we see miraculous, most of the times when we see miraculous things like this taking place in the New Testament, it's to testify to the apostolic ministry that would become the foundation of the church. And Paul was not an original disciple. In fact, by the, at the time that the original disciples were doing ministry, Paul was still killing them. And so it plagued him all throughout his ministry. He constantly, he constantly had, to say, had to say to himself over and over and over again, I think he had to reassure the people he was ministering to, I am from God. I received this ministry from Him. His apostleship was always under question. And so later he would write to the Corinthians. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says this, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. This is in a section where he says, I was just like those super apostles. Apparently there, were, there was opposition constantly that said, you should not follow Paul or listen to him. He's not really, really from God. I mean, he might be okay and he's interesting and he can reason okay, but if you really want to get the good stuff, you need to go to super apostle. And so these signs, it seems like God was gracious to Paul and gave him at times miraculous signs to be a testimony to his ministry. Another thing I think we can learn from this particular section of, of miracles is that secondhand spirituality never works. God will never, ever, ever, ever be used. And these itinerant Jewish exorcists, right? 
said to themselves, well, this is pretty cool. Paul seems to have a following. He's got a powerful ministry by this Holy Spirit. And so they go, and it's almost out of a comic book, right? This seems like it's like a cartoon. They're, they're walking around, and it's like they're just trying it out. Like, a, come out in the name of the guy that Paul says, right? What he said. There's a very secondhand kind of spiritual ministry that they're attempting here. And God will not be mocked. This is a terrifying passage, I think, in some ways. These evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, Paul, I recognized. Who, 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 in, who in the world are you? They must not have given them their business card, right? Oh, well, I'm, a, I'm an exorcist. And these men dabbled with, apparently they dabbled with a kind of dark spirituality to the point that they were overcome, possessed, and left wounded and naked. I do not know what that means. And I will not attempt an application for us uh, out of this particular section. I, I think that there are certain places that you should just not go. I do not know how this happened. I didn't know what we should learn from this. Um, I just know that if this ever happens to you, call someone, right? Just get help is what you should do. You should get help. The extent of this miraculous ministry, and this is one of the things that I think that we ought to learn, God gives miracles to testify to testify to true and right spirituality. And what do we see acted out at the end of this? How do we know that the miracles were authentic? How do we know that his preaching led to true life? The reason we know that it led to true life because it led to true repentance. This is what repentance looks like. Those who were now believers came. They confessed and divulged their practices. They did not go into hiding. They did not have a kind of confession that says, I will admit to everything that you find out. Many of us live our lives that say, I will humble myself just as soon as I'm found out. They came. Repentance is, is an initiative-taking kind of thing. The Spirit of God moves in true repentance in your life when you say to yourself, I can no longer sit on this anymore. I need to find someone and confess and change. A number of those who practiced these things took books, they burned them, and they threw away 50,000 pieces of silver. And in the midst of their repentance, believing and repenting, believing and repenting, believing and repenting, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. God was gracious and giving miraculous signs. But at the end of the day, it ended up in belief, repentance, and them with a deeper understanding of the word. I want to read this last section. This is probably the most well-known event that took place in Ephesus. Uh, before I go there, I just want, I want to mention that Ephesus, if you ever get a chance to go, it's, it's in modern-day Turkey on the west coast of, of Turkey, and it is one of the most amazing archaeological sites on the planet today. Some people have said it is, it is comp it's an open-air, it's the largest open-air museum in the world. It is the ruins of a city, and you can actually go, you get on a bus, I've been there, you get on this, actually some people who had money got on a bus. We, we snagged a ride with a guy, and I kid you not, we walked for like three miles to get to Ephesus to the ruins. And on the way back, we were walking back to the little city that it was, and a man came by with two daughters in the back of a cart full of cotton. They had a cotton farm, and he stopped 
he stopped his little car and asked us if we wanted a ride. And we jumped in the back and I rode three miles in the back of a cart full of cotton with a little girl sitting with a shotgun staring at us in the back of this thing. So, of course, we took selfies and uh, had a great time. But Ephesus still exists, and this, temp- this, this temple, some of the ruins of this amazing temple, as well as the amphitheater where Paul is brought before and there's this chanting that goes on, is still there somewhere deep in the, the bowels of my home are some pictures of me standing down at the, this amphitheater pretending that I'm Paul from the, just like nerdy Bible things, right? Hashtag nerdy Bible life. That would have been the picture for me, right? Pretending that I was that. This section, you can actually go and check it out. It's an amazing part of the world. This is what happened starting in verse 21 of Acts chapter 19. Now after these events, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia, Nicaea, and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. (coughs) And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may, be, may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the, I think it's Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Do you remember when Paul was in Athens a few chapters ago? And he said that it was a wash, it was submerged in idols. We find a similar situation here in Ephesus. 
Specifically, they worshipped around a temple of Artemis. And this temple was no small thing. The Parthenon in Athens, many people believe that this particular temple for Artemis was probably three times the size of that in Athens. It consisted of 127 columns in a huge rectangle, up to 60 feet high, wider than a football field, and probably at least twice as long. There's still ruins of this right across from the theater in in Ephesus to this day. And all throughout this temple, along the front side, in and throughout the temple, there would have been idols. Personal, corporate, group, and individual idols made of precious metals, many of whom were these craftsmen. It got to the point where one of the major industries in this particular town was the making of idols. And because the gospel uproots and speaks to all of life, we find that these people's livelihood is being messed with. They begin to go bankrupt because idol worship is stopping in this particular section of Ephesus. This is why this particular section, I'm using the ridiculous and terrible pun, the Christianity is meddlesome, right? They were metal. It's terrible. It's just terrible, right? Have you ever seen one of those signs that says like uh, terrible puns? And then it's got one of those things that normally you would sell something like before Craigslist existed and it has like a phone number at the bottle. It says like tear off a phone number, except all the little tear off things have puns on them. And it's terrible puns, T-E-A-R-able puns. Nobody? Anyway, yeah. So that's how, that's how bad this is. That's what I felt like saying meddlesome. But it's really true to some extent. Where the gospel is preached, it will be an offense and it will uproot it will uproot the systems of culture. And that's what takes place here. It uproots the economy. Do you remember what took place in Philippi? What was one of the main things that caused the problem there? The reason that Paul got run out of town. Why? Because there was a young girl who was bringing much income with divination. And a very similar thing happens here in Ephesus. I want to note something, though. That Paul did not go in, apparently walking around and seeing the idols in the same way that he did not go in and needlessly offend people in Athens. He did not go in denouncing the culture in Ephesus. He let the gospel do its work, and where the gospel does work, we find widespread repentance and change of heart. I think that it's interesting that it's this town clerk who shows us something about the way that Paul was meddlesome in this culture. He was not needlessly antagonistic. To be bold with the gospel does not mean I'm going to be a jerk about this. We are not spiritual shock jocks, right? That's not the point when you go in. The gospel is offense enough. The exclusive, idol-opposing, life-bringing, resurrected Jesus, that message is culture-shocking and earthquake-making enough that Paul did not need to bring needless antagonism against himself. He did not go in and day after day say, Artemis is is a fake! You're a fraud! He did not organize pickets. 
outside of the craftsmen. He simply preached boldly the news of Jesus and knew that where the Spirit of God goes, it brings about repentance and change. I think this is tempting for us. I, I hope that we would be, it would be said of us what the town clerk could say of Paul. He says, these men are not sacrilegious. They're not blasphemers of our goddess. The point is not for us to blaspheme the idols that we see around us. The point is to worship rightly the true God. If someone said to you, who is non, 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 a non-Christian, let's say you went and found a hundred people and just said, I want you to characterize Christianity to me. What is the preaching about? What are the things that you say? My guess is, is that for a long time, we are more easily known for what we're against, the things that we do not do, the ways that we critique and blaspheme culture than we are for the message of the resurrected Jesus. The good news of the Gospel, that when you come to Him, you can be convinced of sin and you can confess sin, you can repent of that sin, you can find freedom and life in Him. I get the impression that where Paul went, he realized that in a culture that is pluralistic and worshiping idols, that to say that Jesus has exclusive reign, that He is King, that He deserves exclusive worship, that is offensive enough. You don't need to bring further offense by sarcastic mocking of culture around, around us. But nevertheless, he was not weak. He was not, he was not the kind of person who would shrink back. Later in Acts chapter 20, when he characterizes his ministry, he says, them, he says to them, you remember how I was about with my ministry when I was in your presence. I did not shrink back. Twice, he says in Acts chapter 20, I did not shrink back. You see, you don't have to be mocking or blasphemous against someone's worship of idols if you know that by preaching Jesus, there's going to make a claim on their life. And my guess is sometimes that we will be tempted in the moment of our speaking truth to someone. Even if we don't say anything offensive, we know that for them to accept the claims that Christianity makes is going to be unbelievably uprooting to their life. Grace, when it comes, can be costly, especially because all of our hearts cling to and love this world. We love our own pride. We love our sins at times. When you preach the gospel... It can be costly to people, and I think sometimes we know that intuitively, implicitly. But that does not mean that we should shrink back or pull back from speaking the whole counsel of God. In this particular instance, the gospel came in and it uprooted all of the commerce that was taking place. It uprooted so much that there was a riot. There was a picketing. There was a complete, what does he say, a commotion going on. Has anybody ever been to something that was like basically a riot? It's amazing when you start to deal with and you start to press on buttons of things that people love, right? Parades or riots or pickets. There's some terrifying, terrifying commotion and rioting that has taken place when you get a crowd together. And so I read something like this and at first I think to myself, like, no way they shouted this thing for two hours. 
And then I think back over the course of human history and I say to myself, yes, I'm pretty sure they could have easily shouted these kinds of things in enough anger for at least two hours. Next week, we're going to see that Paul's ministry in this time in Ephesus is probably one of the most meaningful that he had in his missionary journeys. Luke, for whatever reason, there's times in these missionary journeys when he just sort of, gla- he just sort of glosses over entire sections. We don't get a whole lot of his time in Corinth. We don't get a whole lot of his time in Galatia, necessarily in individual cities. But Ephesus, we're going to get more than two full chapters of what's taking place with this particular church. And I think it's because of the miraculous. It's because of the odd experiences that we just read about in the beginning of chapter 19. And I think it's because in this particular section, Paul was completely dependent on God. On this vision, do you remember in verse 9 of Acts chapter 18, if you just turn back one page. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. This lesson, go on speaking, continue speaking boldly, is some of the things that Paul learned in the midst of rioting and commotion. It's really astounding that a small band verse 12, and then 120 hidden in an upper room in Jerusalem within two short decades across the known world in a city, a leading city on the side of Asia, now modern-day Turkey, is hosting a community riot about the claims of Christianity. The Spirit of God is moving it forward. We're seeing much fruit. And I'm grateful for the way that Paul was faithful all the way down to the end. In a moment, we're going to come together. We're going to share communion. And I am wondering, as we come to communion in just a moment, if we've wrestled with, if we're pressing in, have we gotten beyond, have we gotten beyond to the point where we're too proud to ask questions and say, I don't understand, I don't know? Are we asking one another? Are we pressing in and saying to each other, are you learning, are you growing? And more than that, I am desiring, I would love that at a certain point we could look back in in our life and I I wonder this question. Are we practicing a kind of Christianity that does not meddle with our life? Are we practicing a kind of Christianity that does not lead to wholesale repentance like it did for those who were sons of Sceva, those who were practicing magic at the time? For those who gave up their idol worship so much so that it put these guys out of business. There is a repentance, a call to repentance, a change of life that comes with commitment to Jesus. There's grace at this table. We know that you don't repent perfectly. We call you to that over and over and over again. But where the gospel goes, it uproots and changes life. That's what we need to, I think, settle and understand. Let me pray for us and we'll have communion in a moment.